As we move into a new sermon series over this next month, we will be considering the membership covenant of United Methodist. I know those that may be guests with us today are thinking, well, this leaves me out in terms of the nature of what we are discussing. Uh, not true. Uh, this membership covenant is uh, designed in order that we might consider what it is to be Christian, fully Christian. And so uh, whether you are a member of this local congregation or not, uh, there is much within this covenant that could move us to the place of being better followers of Christ. In fact, it is the basics of following Christ. The big five that we covenant to give to our local congregation, our prayers, our presence, our gifts, our service, and our witness. And all of that is an act of loving God more fully. At the end of this month, we will consider even further what does it mean as we say in the Pittman Park vision statement, what does it mean to make faithful followers of Jesus Christ? For those who are not members, this is not exclusive. For those who are members, this is a call to renewal. A little bit of background with this story that I'm so grateful that Nick read and not me. <laughs> uh, you did great with those names. Uh, fifth century before Christ, while we know that Christ has always been and will always be, five centuries before he was born of Mary, there were leaders in Israel that were seeking to reestablish not only the government, but more importantly, religion in the place of Jerusalem. They had been given permission by King Cyrus. Among these leaders was one man named Nehemiah, another named Ezra. Nehemiah was a governor Ezra was a priest. They had been given permission. Why? Because there was nothing left to conquer that King Cyrus was interested in. And Israel was such a small player in world politics, it behooved him to say to those that he knew were from the region, you return and put in place again the religion that you grew up with and reestablish the temple while you're at it. When Nehemiah went to Jerusalem, he saw a city that was in destruction. When the people were carried off into exile, it was not just their captivity that was problematic. They saw the city being dismantled. 
So when Nehemiah looked at it, the first thing that he saw needed to be done was the reestablishment of the walls in order that the gates themselves could take on meaning once again. When he came to the completion of that project, he realized that there was something even far greater that needed to be put in place. This passage today has us meeting with the people in the court of the temple, however simple that might have been at that time. Ezra comes out with the scroll, and as he approaches the people, there are those that he has gathered around him that are meant to be interpreters of the scripture. We all need interpreters. Some people think they can get it on their own. We all need interpreters around us to help us in our understanding of the scripture. And these that had been gathered around Ezra, when the book was opened, and as the people listened, they began to explain to them what it meant to be a part of Torah law. What it meant to serve God. In fact, let me read just a little bit of the end of this passage and move into several other scripture passages just following, several other verses. Then Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered, Amen, Amen, lifting up their hands. Then they bowed their heads and worshiped the Lord with their faces to the ground. And all of these that were gathered helped the people to understand the law while the people remained in their places. So they read from the book, from the law of God, with interpretation. They gave the sense so that the people understood the teaching. And Nehemiah, who was the governor, and Ezra the priest and scribe, and the Levites who taught the people said to all the people, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people wept when they heard the words of the law. Then he said to them, Go your way, eat the fat and drink sweet wine, and send portions of them to those for whom nothing is prepared. For this day is holy to our Lord, and do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. I know you've heard that passage before. You maybe even have sung it. The joy of the Lord is your strength. This is where it comes from. Did you hear what I read and how they were reacting to the reading of God's holy word? They were weeping. They cared what was going on in that place. In fact, all of us are called to care and to be involved. But it was so obvious in reading this passage that they were fully immersed in the presence of God and the profound nature of what was going on. And so they prayed, Amen. Amen. It is an essential component of Christianity. The closest format that we have 
to anything dealing with prayer in the gospel telling is when the disciples of Jesus came and said to him, John the baptizer is teaching his disciples to pray. We want you to teach us to pray. And as Jesus looked on them, he gave them the Lord's Prayer, or might better be called the Disciples' Prayer, because it was Jesus' gift to them. It's the same prayer that you and I share together, and in fact, we will share in just a few moments. It has become a part of the tradition of Pittman Park when we share this prayer to reach out and take the hand of someone near you. In fact, I speak those words, and you'll hear me in just a few moments. Take the hand of someone near you as we share together in the prayer that Jesus taught us to pray. Why is that? It's because this prayer, even though it may be used individually, it is intended for the community of faith. It is a prayer that we pray together. In fact, that's where it takes on its greatest significance. That you and I are united together in sharing in this prayer that Christ has called us to. But even then, it is not meant to be a format for exactly how prayer should be. He is wishing for his disciples, those that follow him, to be inclined toward the nature of being praying people. That was so evident when Jesus moved into the temple. You remember that part of the story? Just after he came in and his triumphal entry, he moved into the temple and he sees that very well the structure is functioning in a way that is profitable. And yet all of these tables of the money vendors and, and those that are selling the, the doves and the animals for sacrifice, all of this has begun to take over. And Jesus, in his frustration and anger even, he, he turns over the tables of those that are there. And he says to them, don't you remember that it's written that my house will be a house of prayer. It will be a house of prayer. I don't know how much of that sunk into the disciples who followed him around and were always trying to figure out exactly what his point was. But remember that he spoke to his disciples in parable, encouraging them to be, be very diligent in their prayer. He told them a story about a woman who was persistent. And she came to a judge, an unjust judge, whom she wanted to, to hear her case and understand why she was accused as she was. And by her persistence, finally, he listened to her, even though he didn't want to. Jesus says, do you not think that God wants to hear what you have to say? But still be persistent. <laughs> be persistent in coming to God in prayer. And yet the disciples struggled with that persistence. When they were with him in the Garden of Gethsemane. When Jesus was sweating droplets of blood. As he thought through what he would experience. And moving on toward Golgotha and being crucified there. And as he thought about the nature of his life as the saving grace for the world and all its sin. 
His disciples were doing what? They were sleeping. And he came back to them and he said, can't you stay awake with me? Keep prayer while I pray. And yet over and over again, they would fall asleep and fall away from this calling to be a praying people. Do you understand how crucial this is about the covenant that we make to be a people of prayer? Not only just praying for the church, which is an incredibly important thing, but being known as a person of prayer, known to ourselves and known to others as being praying people. We were gathered down in Broxton for a meal. This was a few years back. Around the table, the greater family had gathered. Sue's parents were there, of course. Sue's mother had prepared a feast for us. And Sue's sister and her family, and we were there. There were as many as we could slide up to the table. There was a nephew there that was on the other side of the table from me. Sue's mother, uh, Margaret, looked at me as the young pastor in the mix and said, would you lead us in prayer? And immediately this young nephew of mine said, oh no, I want to pray. I'm a good prayer. And I looked at him and I deferred to him and I said, yes, you are and you pray for us. And so as we quietly bowed our heads, he began to pray and to thank God for every single thing on that table and in the room. I, I thought to myself, is he remembering all of this? And I had to peek, and I realized that his eyes were wide open, and he was just, everything he saw, he was naming as he went through the prayer. When we finally got to the place that we were through with the prayer and began the meal, I smiled to myself, and I thought, he does know how to pray. Some of you have received the, the photo directory that we have just uh, put together, I, I say we colloquially, um, I had very little to do with it. Stephanie, if you want to thank anybody, uh, did just an enormous amount of work in bringing that together, and, and there were some others that gave time to it as well. But uh, I did have a small part of putting a letter at the front of that directory one of those things that you flip past, you know, and you may not have read that and may not intend to, but in that letter, I suggested that this directory might not be simply informational, but formational, that we use it as a prayer book to pray for each other. I know that you like to find faces of persons so that you'll be able to call them by name, which is an important, important, important thing. But while you are working through the directory, use it as an opportunity to be in prayer for those persons that you find there. And it will make you even more connected with them. As you lift up your prayers of thanksgiving, as you lift up your prayers of intercession, as you lift up and covenant in your heart to be a person of prayer. This is a two-part sermon, and Grayson is glad of that. <laughs> the, second, the second point is presence. We are called to be a 
a people of prayer. We are called to be persons of presence. We are called to be present to each other. And we are called to be present to God. We live a very distracted existence. You know this, don't you? When you go to walk around in any location, if you go into an establishment to sit down and eat, what is it the thing that you see most visible in the area? That is cell phones. Bye, Grayson. We love you. <laughs> you see people on their cell phones that are orienting themselves to communicate with people and things that are not present to them there in that place. It really is is sad when we are so captured by technology that we cannot be fully present in the place where we actually are. Our distracted existence is something that I believe is taking its toll on the world, not just because people text and drive and have terrible accidents because of it, but because... It is an injury to us that we may not have yet become fully aware in other ways. Jean-Pierre de Cassade wrote a classic 300 years ago that he entitled The Sacrament of the Present Moment in which he encouraged Christians, followers of Christ, to realize that every day, every moment, is sacred. Every moment is sacred. I need to be reminded of this. There are sometimes that I come to great self-conviction when I'm in a hospital room visiting with someone and all of a sudden they say to me, I don't want to keep you. I think to myself, I have not been fully present here because they think that I feel like I need to be somewhere else other than where I am. It is something that is heart-wrenching when I hear those words. Each day is a sacrament. I know this, and some people are better at it than others. I went into a fast food restaurant just recently. Did not have time. You know how the schedule goes did not have time to even go into the fast food restaurant. I was going through the drive-thru at the fast food restaurant. And I pulled up and in that garbled conversation, got my menu across to them, my order across to them, and then pulled around to the window to get the food. I had the card out, ready to pay and be on my way. And the lady there at the window looked at me and then looked back at those that were working near her. And she said, she said, oh, one of our favorite customers. I mean, she, I was thinking facetious. Was she being facetious here? And then I thought to myself, no, she's not. She's looking directly into my eyes. She said, one of our favorite customers. And then I began to look for cameras, you know. <laughs> I, I thought... Am I supposed to know her, you know? Is this what's going on here? And then I realized they had just one up Chick-fil-A. 
This was their new thing. It wasn't simply your, my pleasure, you know, in response to uh, giving you your order. But they were choosing to believe that any person that came to their window was someone with whom they needed to be fully present. And it worked. I couldn't take my eyes off of her. And she was looking right into my eyes. And she was fully present, and I was fully present. It's incredible how that happens in just a moment. I'm so preoccupied with what's coming next. Are you like that sometimes? Naomi Shahab Nye was born in St. Louis, Missouri, but she spent most of her time growing up, at least in Palestine, her father is a Palestinian refugee. Her mother, an American of German and Swiss descent. Naomi is presently on staff at Trinity University in San Antonio, Texas, where she continues to live and work. And she is a tremendous poet. In fact, I want to share with you a poem of hers that we have on our refrigerator at home it is called red brocade the Arabs used to say when a stranger appears at your door feed him for three days before asking who he is and where he's from and where he's headed that way he'll have strength enough to answer or by then you'll be such good friends you don't care Let's go back to that. Rice? Pine nuts? Here, take the red brocade pillow. My child will serve water to your horse. No, I was not busy when you came. I was not preparing to be busy. That's the armor everybody put on to pretend they had a purpose in the world. I refuse to be claimed. Your plate is waiting. We will snip fresh mint into your tea. Do you get it? Do you see how present this one with the spirit of hospitality so resident deep within their being is called to be? You and I covenant to be present. If that is duty, simply to be here, we've missed the point. We are called to be present to God and present to each other. I'm present to my watch right now. And realize that we could spend the next ten minutes worrying that we may be the last in line <laughs> at a restaurant down the street. And I want to call you to be present here. Even though we are moving into the end of this service, after the hour, we do so with hearts filled with joy. We come to the table of our Lord. Let us be fully present to him here in this place.